John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. Hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. How many of you remember the game 20 Questions? 20 Questions. How many? Yeah, okay, a number of folks. All right. Uh, It used to be what we would do while traveling in the car. And now everybody's on their devices, and so you don't need to do these things. But uh, when the children say, Mom, Dad, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? Mom and Dad would say, well, let's play a game. And the good thing about 20 questions, it's a very simple game, and it's kind of a slow game. Because the way it works is, someone thinks of anything in the world, anything, and then has to say, whether it's animal, vegetable, or mineral, And then everyone else has to ask questions that are either yes or no questions. And the one who has this this thing in his or her mind simply says yes or no. And the players get 20 questions to guess. And it's remarkable how often they actually can figure it out after 20 questions. Well, um, this conversation reminds me a little bit of that. Of 20 questions, there's something of a slowly developing uh, conversation here that uh, uh, where the the interlocutors uh, some ask yes no questions, and the one who's answering simply keeps saying no, no, no. Well, who's asking and who's answering? Well, those who are asking, we meet in verse 19. It says, "This is the testimony of John, and we met John last week, didn't we?" Now, remember from last week that the author, whom we're also calling John, John the Apostle, uh, he is going to call a number of witnesses throughout this book. And the first witness he calls to testify 
is his namesake, John, whom we call John the Baptist. And we heard a little bit of John the Baptist's testimony last week. But now we're going to hear more of this first witness whom John the Apostle has called to bear testimony. And says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, this, uh, this is curious, and it's something we'll see throughout the Gospel of John. He keeps referring to the Jews. And that's curious, because the author was a Jew, and almost all of the characters in the story are Jews. So, it, would, it seems kind of strange that he would use that description, because it seems not to describe anybody, or it describes everybody. But what we need to do, like whenever we study the Scripture, is we need to say, what's the context here, and what does that context tell us about who the Jews are? Because sometimes it's very positive, sometimes it's a neutral description, and sometimes it's a negative description. But we find out here that the Jews are the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem. And they sent the priests and the Levites. Now, who were the priests and the Levites? There were 12 tribes of Israel, and there was the Levitical tribe, the Levite tribe. And they were taken apart from the rest of the tribes, and then they sort of changed the way they counted it, so they'd still have 12 tribes. And the Levites, they were the ones who took care of the worship. And the priests were a subsection of the Levites. They were descended from Moses' brother Aaron. And they were the ones that offered the sacrifices in the temple. So these were the temple workers. Now, we don't have this information from John, but if you go to Luke, you find that John the Baptist's dad, what was his job? He was a priest. Exactly. So he was from a Levite family, a priestly family, and he wasn't doing the normal things that priests should do. He wasn't staying in Jerusalem, offering sacrifices, singing in the choir, uh, taking care of the temple. He was out in the wilderness baptizing people. And so, from their perspective, they have a something of a renegade priest here. And so it's not surprising that the, the priests and the Levites go to him and say, Who are you? Who are you? Now, instead of uh, answering the question positively, he vehemently confessed, it says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, they had not mentioned the Christ, but he just cut right to the chase. If this is what you're thinking, let me just cut off any idea right now that I am the Christ. Now, who is the Christ? The Jews were expecting from the Old Testament a figure who would come. And Christ is the Greek word, or Christos, uh, we say Christ. It's the Greek word for the, the Hebrew word, which means anointed one. And there were anointed ones in the Old Testament. The kings were anointed. The priests were anointed. In one case, there was a prophet who was anointed. And so the officials of Israel were anointed ones. And there was this expectation that these offices would come together in the, the maximum anointed one, who would be the one who would put all things right in Israel. And so he says, just to be clear from the get-go, I am not that one. And so they asked some other questions. And here's where the 20 questions start. Yes, no questions. It says in verse 21, What then? Are you Elijah? Now, Elijah was also expected 
to return. Elijah was a prophet, a preacher from the Old Testament, kind of the quintessential prophet. And he was expected to return in some sort of a manifestation before the day of the Lord. If you look at Malachi, I'll just leave this for homework. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Some of the last verses in our arrangement of the Old Testament that uh, God says He will send Elijah before the coming of the day of the Lord. And so they were expecting Elijah to come. So he says, they say to him, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And then they asked, same verse, 21, are you the prophet? Now, who is the prophet? Here you have to go back, and this is, I think it's in your your sheet. You can go back and look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. All the way back in the time of Moses, God had said, I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses. And so, during all these centuries, they were expecting the prophet like Moses to come. So, these are two of the heaviest hitters of the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah. And they had this expectation that these figures would somehow reappear in some other sort of manifestation before the day of the Lord, before the Christ came. And they asked him, are you the prophet? And he simply said, no. Verse 22, they seem to be a little bit exasperated here. They're sent on a mission and they're getting frustrated. Verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, they finally ask an open-ended question, and they say, what do you say? You tell us then. If, you're not gonna, if we're not right about any of these things, you tell us. And then he answered by quoting from another prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah. And he quoted Isaiah, who said this, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so he's affirming something about what they were saying. They were saying, are you one of these preparatory figures? Are you one of these figures who's going to come before the Lord? And he basically says, yes, but I'm a voice. Now, we saw that last week that Jesus is called the Word, and here... Uh, John simply says, I'm not the Word, I'm just a voice that is preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. Now that is John's initial testimony about himself. And then we have verse 24, which is kind of strange and kind of strange for us. We just can't quite figure it out too easily because it says here, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were a... a uh, a group of the Jews who were very, very strict in their desire to obey the law. But they weren't normally the ones associated with the priests and Levites. The priests and Levites were normally associated with another group. These were called the Sadducees. So it's kind of hard to figure out what the Pharisees are doing here in this group of of, uh, priests and Levites. And the, the Pharisees did not control the priests and Levites, so I think the best way to read verse 23 is that among the priests and Levites, there was also part of that de- a delegation, a, a section of Pharisees. So the priests and Levites didn't get very far in their questions, did they? So now the, the Pharisees say, they jump in with a question. And they say, well, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What are you doing baptizing? And by the way, baptism was not unknown among the Jews of that day. 
Because if somebody who was not a Jew, that is, somebody who was a Gentile, a non-Jew, and, and, and that's how, that, that was the mentality of, of the Jewish people. There are two types of people in the world. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. And if a non-Jew, a Gentile, wanted to become part of the people of God, if he was male, he had to be circumcised. And in any case, this convert was washed. But this was a self-baptism. Nobody baptized the converts. They took themselves a ritual bath. And that was the the baptism to become a, a convert to Judaism. But let me ask you something. Who was baptized? Gentiles. Who was John baptizing? He was baptizing Jews. So, what are you doing baptizing? Jews. As if they were outside and needed to be brought in. This was very curious and very unorthodox in the day. And then he took advantage of that question to distinguish himself and just talk about the purpose of his baptism. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Then there's a geographical reference. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. It looks like there were two Bethanies. There's a Bethany near Jerusalem. And there was a Bethany apparently beyond the Jordan on the east side of the Jordan River uh, across from Jerusalem uh, where he was baptizing. Now, what does he say about his baptism? He says, this baptism is to point to another person. The reason he came baptizing in the Gospel of Luke, is for repentance. In the Gospel of John, the baptism is for revelation. And these two things go together. But in Luke, it emphasizes that the people who were baptized were repenting of their sins. But here, he says, I baptize because I am pointing. Do you remember who I am? I'm the voice of one calling out in the desert. I'm the one who is preparing the way of the Lord. And so my baptism is a signpost pointing to another one. And he says, this one's already among you. But you don't know this one. You don't know this one. And then John says one of the most humble statements in Scripture. He says, He comes after me, and I am not, un- I'm not worthy to uh, untie his sandal. The Jews of the day had certain norms. So there were teachers, and these teachers had disciples. And these disciples were expected to serve their teachers. They were expected to, to take care of their teachers. But one thing they were never expected to do, and these, these are written rules of the day, they were never expected to handle their sandals. Because that's really a menial task. The only one who could be required to handle the footwear of the teacher was a slave. And what John is saying here is, I'm not worthy even to take the place of the slave in comparison with this one who is among you, whom you do not know. So that's John's testimony about himself. And then beginning in verse 29, we have the testimony, his testimony about Jesus. The next day. By the way, in this, these first couple chapters, we will see this. Look at verse 29. It starts with the next day. Verse 43, it starts with the next day. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says on the third day. So he's giving us some, 
some chronological reference points here, and we'll get to that in chapter 2 about what that might mean, why he's laying out this first week of, uh, of his testimony. But it says that he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now let me ask you something. Have you ever heard that expression, Lamb of God? Anybody ever heard that before? Among Christians and in the church, that's a very common expression. And so we might be surprised to learn that this is the only place it shows up. Uh, And also in verse 36, but in verse 36, it's referring back to this verse. It's the only place. And so this looks like it was a a new, it was a new expression, an unusual expression, uh, perhaps a, a novelty on John's part. It looks like maybe John the Baptist put something together that that people had not put together yet in referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now, scholars are divided about what the reference is here because there are a number of lambs in the Old Testament. There is, of course, the Passover lamb that was slain uh, when Moses was leading the people out of Israel. And to this day, Jews celebrate the Passover. And uh, the idea is to sacrifice the lamb in memory of that lamb that was slain for each family so that the angel of death would pass over the people of Israel. That's one lamb. There also, every day, there was a morning lamb sacrificed and there was an evening lamb sacrificed. And then, as we read in Leviticus chapter 4, there was the sin offering. And it could be a goat, or it could be a lamb. And it looks like uh, that, that idea of sacrifice for sin is prominent in John's reference. Why? Because he says, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away or takes up the sin of the world. And we saw this word world last week. It's prominent in John. And we saw that this word world refers to uh, the, the created world order, including humanity, but particularly with reference to rebellion against God. So this is quite good news. It's saying he takes away the sin, not just of the, the created order, but of the, the rebellious human order as it is raised up in rebellion against God. Now, um, John identified him as the Lamb of God, and we will find out in the rest of the Gospel, particularly as we get to the end of it, how he functioned as the Lamb of God. But at this point, we can at least notice that this is an arresting image, because what happened to the Passover Lamb? It was killed. What happened to the morning and evening lambs every day? They were killed. What happened to the the lamb or the goat that was offered as a sin offering? It was killed. And so this is an ominous reference from the very beginning. They knew what happened to lambs in the sacrificial system of Israel. And here John says, he's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Then he identifies him in verse 30 as the one that he'd already mentioned. If you go back to verse 15, compare that to verse 30. uh, Same idea. He ranks before me because he was before me. And then John says something very interesting here. John says, I didn't know him. I didn't know him. And this is a theme that goes throughout throughout, uh, John. The idea of ignorance of of who he is. Because in in, uh, verse 10 we learned that the world does not know him in verse 26 
we find out that the religious leaders did not know him. And here in verse 31, John himself says what? I didn't know him either. But John depended on a sign. John depended on a revelation from God in order that he might know this one whom God was sending to take away the sins of the world. And the sign was this. The sign was this. And by the way, John doesn't tell when this happened. The other Gospels tell that this happened when he baptized Jesus. But we don't have Jesus' baptism here in John. But he says this, verse 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Then he emphasizes again, I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, we will have time, if the Lord permits, to talk about the Holy Spirit more in depth because chapters 14, 15, and 16, in those chapters, Jesus will talk much about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was not an unknown concept to the Jews. In fact, they were familiar with the idea of the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, the opening verses of the Bible. Uh, In verse 2 of the Bible, the Spirit of God appears. The Spirit of God was there at creation, hovering over the the formless and chaotic creation, and then bringing out of it, uh, through the Word of God, bringing order and bringing fullness. Or you can think about... Uh, Psalm 51, where, where, where the psalmist prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So there was this understanding of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. But once again, we find something that may be a novelty on John's part. Um, the, the fact that he was able to identify the dove and the Spirit. That's in all four of the Gospels, but you don't find that really in the Old Testament. So here we have... Two, two new ideas in the preaching of John. We have the Lamb of God, and we also have the Spirit of God who descends upon Jesus uh, like a dove. That's the, the visible manifestation. Now, notice that he says twice. He descended and he remained on him. John says that twice. The Spirit descended and remained or dwelt in him. And that makes sense because John says, I baptize with what? I baptize with water. But he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And it makes sense that the one on whom the Spirit remains, in whom the Spirit dwells, would then be able, by that Spirit, to baptize. And we'll see that as we move forward in this Gospel of John. Now, John topped off his testimony with something we suspected, from chapter 1. Um, in chapter 1, verse 8, it talked about the only, the only, the one and only God who is uh, in, uh, in the, the bosom of the Father. Well, if you have a Father, we suspected that there would also be a Son. And here we have that confirmation in verse 34, this astounding claim that this one who is the Word, who is the light, uh, who is the only one, who is the, the one on whom the Spirit dwells, the coming one, that this one is the very Son of God. And that will be a theme that goes through, and we'll learn more about throughout this Gospel, what that means, that He is the Son of God. Now, um, 
this, uh, up to this point, and we'll continue to, to be finding more and more about Jesus, uh, but the two things uh, that, that affect our lives, as it were, uh, in this, this declaration of who, who Jesus is, the two things that, that connect with where we are, are this question of the, the coming of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, but we'll also talk about today and focus on G, uh, John's first statement about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this is a message that I find sometimes irritates people. I, I find sometimes that people are irritated at what they call the, the kind of the moroseness or the pessimism of Christians. They were always talking about sin. And, um, but at the same time, at the same time, there's something very striking, not only about Christians, but about humanity. Humanity. And whether or not you are a Christian today, I think you will identify with what I'm about to say. And that is, in all of humans, as far as I can tell, there is a performance gap. There is a gap between what we think is right and what we think we should do and not do and how we actually perform. And that's not just something in Christianity. You find that in all religions. You find that in all philosophies. You find that in humans. And so however you want to call this, the Bible calls this sin, but however you want to call this, all humans seem to have hardwired into us this, this awareness that there's something not right, that there is a, there's a gap between what we know we should do and what we actually do. And humans have come up with very creative and various ways to deal with this performance gap. One of the most common ways to deal with this performance gap is to deny it. Uh, to, yes, we'll say things like, well, I'm not perfect, which is an incredibly arrogant statement, because the implication is, well, I mean, almost, right? Almost. I mean, there, there, may, be, there may be something, but it's certainly a, a little tiny gap there, which is a denial of it. Or, uh, maybe some people take it more seriously, and they're more aware that that gap is, is there, but they try to minimize it. And one of the best ways to minimize it, we think, is by comparing ourselves to others. We say, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, yes, I, I, yes, I understand, but I'm not as bad as... And then they name some, some tyrant from history and say, at least I'm not that bad. So we can deny, we can minimize, or if we take it a bit more seriously and it really troubles us and bothers us, then uh, another solution, and you find this in many religions, is self-condemnation. And we can do that one of two ways. Either by, by flagellating ourselves, by punishing ourselves in some way, denying ourselves, treating ourselves badly, either physically or emotionally or however that may be, or, or reforming ourselves and, and saying, okay, now I'm really going to change. And I promise, and I'm really going to make a difference this time, and I'm really going to, going to be better in the future. Or there's some who take it very, very seriously. And they realize that, that denying is not going to work. They realize that minimizing is not going to work. And they realize that self-condemnation and self-reformation are not going to work either. And these people tend to fall into despair. 
But this is the human condition, folks. And so when John comes along and says, Look, behold, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of rebellious humanity, that that is a, a message that really gets to our human condition, doesn't it? And, and, and think about that. Take away. Uh, in what sense does, does the Lamb of God take away? Well, we know from other parts of Scripture, He takes away the sin of those who trust in Him in two senses. First of all, by taking away the guilt of it before God, by paying, therefore, taking the penalty and paying for the guilt of sin so that we're no longer guilty and liable to, pun- be, to punishment before God. But also by breaking the power of sin in our lives so that we are no longer enslaved to it. Now, what does this look like? What's this experience? Maybe you've had this experience, maybe you haven't yet, but what does this experience look like? When, when we find that Jesus is able to take away our sins. I was in a Bible study not long ago, and we were studying the Gospel And a woman uh, appeared to grasp the idea for the first time. And she said this. She said, I feel like a weight has fallen off my shoulders. And I thought immediately of John Bunyan. And I thought immediately of this book, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, one of the bestsellers of all time in the English language, written in the 1600s when Pastor John Bunyan was imprisoned for his faith. And the whole book is his dream. And he dreams about a man who lived in the city of destruction. And this man became concerned about this this great burden that was on his back and it was weighing him down and he was concerned that it might sink him down to utter destruction. But the people around him thought he was morose. They thought he was was being too serious. And, And he said, no, this is really there and I need to do something about it. And so he leaves the city of destruction and he heads out and he meets a number of people along the way and he has a number of adventures. But I want to read what happened to him in chapter 3. John Bunyan says, Now, I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go, that's what his name is, it's either Pilgrim or Christian, called Christian here, Christian was to go, was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall is called Salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of an open tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that at the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, 
until the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now, as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first one said to him, Thy sins be forgiven. The second one stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of clothing. The third also set a mark in his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bid look on as he ran, so that he should give it at the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. And this was his song. Thus far did I come loaden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed crossed, blessed sepulchre, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. That's how it feels to have our sins taken away and removed from us once and for all. And then after that, you know how it feels? And I've heard this time and time again. It's what I experience and experience as a Christian. It feels like increasing power. It feels like finding ourselves not so drawn to sin anymore. It feels like the ability not to be enslaved anymore to the things that once bound us so that we go through life leaving aside these chains which once kept us bound. And so, I urge you, don't settle for denial. The gap is there. Don't settle for minimization. The gap is wide. Don't settle for condemnation of yourself because someone has already been condemned for those who will trust in Him. Don't settle for reformation that's putting band-aid on a cancer. Rather, look to Jesus with faith in Him so that your sin might be taken away. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and He can take away even yours. Let's pray. Oh God, the reason we come and we read from Your Word and, and I make an attempt to explain it is because we want to see Jesus. We need to, Lord. We know that there's something amiss with us and we want to have a relationship with You. And we get tired of being enslaved to the things that sink us down. And we identify with poor Christian with that weight on his back. And we want to be free, O God. We sang earlier in the service, would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you, O evil, a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood, the precious blood of the Lamb. And so, Lord, we behold the Lamb of God whom you have provided for us. O God, through Him, take away our sin. May we never be found in the same place as our sin before you and give us increasing victory over it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.